Stone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we speak today on things that are beyond our complete comprehension, we would ask that you would open our eyes to help us understand what you want us to understand. That your name would be glorified. That we would see, as it says in your word, the glory of God on the face of Christ. And that our hearts would be inclined to worship him. Father, we need your guidance and your help through your spirit today. You are worthy of praise, and we want to worship you accordingly. And now, as a sign of unity, I invite all of you to pray with me the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please be seated. This one magically appeared while I was praying. Very good. <laughs> good morning, everyone. Scott is gone, has been gone all week with Eric at the North American Christian Convention. That is why he is not here. And I am filling in for Scott today. I am not a minister of this church. For those of you who don't know me, I know a lot of you, of course. My wife and I have been members here about a year and a half now, a year and eight months, actually. So it's good to be here with you. It is a privilege for me to speak to you. I love to do it whenever I have the chance. Speaking on the things of God is a tremendous privilege and responsibility. And I am not unaware of the fact that James says not many of you should presume to be teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment. I'm very aware of that verse. <laughs> that is why I always prepare and use scripture alone. <laughs> but I want to talk to you today about something that came up recently about a month ago. My family was involved in a camp at Camp ACC over in the Unicoi area. There was a, it was a middle school camp, so both of our boys were enrolled. But there was a young middle school girl, probably about 13 years old, who came up to the counselors after the first night's session and said very innocently, I don't mean to offend anyone, but what's so significant and special about the sacrifice of Jesus? A lot of people have sacrificed. What makes his any more unique or different? My friends, that is a fantastic question. From a 13-year-old who said, you're all preaching about Jesus. You all agree about it. Why should I care? Because there's a lot of sincere people out there who teach a lot of things. And a lot of sacrifices happen in our world and have for years. So what's so unique and special about Jesus and his sacrifice? If we can't answer that, then we are no more than a social club. In fact, we're just like every other religious group that meets, who thinks they've got the corner on the truth. But if we can't explain it, we're just like the rest. My hope and prayer is that today we will be able to answer that question, that you will be able to walk out of here and articulate why the cross of Jesus Christ is unique 
how it stands out and is different than any other sacrifice or religious system that has ever been presented to mankind. That's my sincere prayer. And to begin, I want to start by looking at a few of the common ways of looking at the cross. Some of this material came from a man that I've learned a lot from named Bob Coughlin. He's a worship minister with Sovereign Grace Ministries, so I want to give him credit for some of the ideas in this. Others came from uh, R.C. Sproul, a book called The Holiness of God. And like I said, teachers will incur a stricter judgment, so I either use scripture or someone else who knows a lot more than me. But here are some ways of viewing the cross. Some would say it is a sentimental story. It's a tragic story, but it has a good ending. After all, he rose from the dead. So people will wear cross jewelry because it makes them feel good. Even though, of course, the cross is a depiction of the Romans' greatest invention of cruelty and death. <laughs> but it has a good ending, and so people like to wear jewelry for that reason. It's, it's a good story that can help me through my own trials. Well, there's some truth in that, but that doesn't explain why it happened. It's inadequate. So some would say, well, it's a martyrdom story. It's the story of a man who died for a good cause. This is common in the secular world. Those who know a lot about the history of Christianity but don't believe in it, they would say Jesus was a good teacher, cared about the poor and the oppressed, the injustice within society. His message was one of love and forgiveness, and he railed against the authorities by pointing out their very hypocrisy. And in the end, he lost his life because he pushed the envelope too far, angered the wrong people, and suffered the greatest consequence because of it. Well, there's truth in that as well. There's some truth. But that doesn't explain why it happened either. That's just a partial explanation. Some would say, all right, well, it's, Jesus is my moral example. He's an example of humility and servanthood and suffering and compassion. There was a church that had a sign that said, we're doing a new series, Jesus as my mentor. Well, there's truth in that. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who took upon him the form of a servant. Or in Peter, it talks about him as a suffering example for us, so we should not be ashamed or discouraged when we suffer. There's truth in that. But the purpose of the cross is much more than just an inspiration for our lives. That doesn't explain it adequately either. Others would say, well, it's a display of power. And we talked about that today in one of the songs. Christ overcame sin and death and Satan by what he accomplished at the cross. He's the conqueror. That's true. Absolutely true. Hebrews 2 says that, that he overcame sin, death, and hell. But why did he overcome? It wasn't just a thunderstorm. <laughs> it had a motive. There was an agenda. It was planned years and hundreds of years before it happened. Isaiah preached 700 years before Christ came on, and he said in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would suffer and die. So it was planned. That doesn't adequately explain why either. Well, probably the most popular reason is people would say it's an expression of love. The cross is a statement of how much I'm worth, how precious and valuable I am in the sight of God. Well, there's truth to that. God does love us. That's all through Scripture. The most famous verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that Jesus Christ died for us. 
But we forget that Jesus didn't want to go through with it. He agonized the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, let me find it. Yet not my will, but thine be done. And in the end, there was no other way. And he followed the Father's will. If God just wanted to express his love for us, he could have done that in a myriad of ways. He could have had the clouds have an expression of love every day of our life. I love you, God. Lots of things he could have done. Why the cross? Why did Jesus agonize over it and there was no other way? That's the secret we have to unlock. Why was there no other way? Well, you have an outline there in your notes. I'm going to fill those six blanks in for you. If I forget to tell you one, raise your hand. Seriously, so you can write it in. I'm going to try to remember to tell you. To understand properly why Jesus suffered and died, we have to answer this call. No, just kidding. <laughs> Dogney's gotten me many times. I can get hurt. <laughs> to answer this question properly, we have to go back to why we were created in the first place. First blank in your outline is God's plan. Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are created in the image of God. We are spirit beings. We are living souls, unlike the animals. We are not just physical. We choose right and wrong, and we suffer consequences morally for our decisions. No animal does that. We are living soul. We are in the image of God. And in the image of God, we have one purpose, only one. We are to bring glory to his name. Isaiah 43, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. 1 Corinthians 10:31. whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do it all to the glory of God. Matthew 5:16, Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good deeds and Give glory to your Father in heaven. That's our purpose, to bring glory to God. That's God's plan. Next blank in your outline. But man rebelled, man's rebellion. Genesis 11, back to the beginning. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may proclaim the glory of God for all the watching universe. Is that what it says? so that we may make a name for ourselves. Man tries to become God and replace him as ruler. Psalm 2, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. My friends, that's what we do. We were made in the image of God to bring glory to his name. And you and I, at the core of who we are, want glory to our name. And you know that's true. I have a two-year-old niece. That two-year-old niece is all about me, 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 me. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. So there's a problem. Third blank in your outline, God's holy justice. The scripture indicates God is holy. 
In fact, even the most powerful of all angelic beings cannot bear to look directly into the face of God or they would be instantly destroyed. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. Scott preached on this a few months ago. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Seraphim are burning angelic beings. The name seraph means to burn. You don't get any more impressive in all of the creation that God has made than seraphim. And yet, what do the seraphim do when they are in the presence of God? They cover their faces. They cannot look at the full glory of God. And they cover their feet as a sign of their creatureliness. They're pure. They've never sinned. But they're still creatures in the presence of one who is not a creature. And they must cover their feet in humility. God has supplied them with two extra pair of wings so they can be in his presence. And the final one, they hover around his throne day and night, and they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. You go to Revelation chapter 4, and you'll see that they are still doing it. Their one job is to declare the holiness of God for all eternity. It is as if the language they are using cannot adequately describe the holiness of the God they worship, and therefore must, they therefore must repeat it for all eternity. That is the holiness of our God. Because he is holy, he cannot accept anything less than perfection from those who bear his image. We bear his image, remember. We reflect him to the universe. The universe sees us, and they should understand God. How are we doing? 1 Peter 1, Just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. That's the mandate God has given us because we have the privilege of carrying his image. No other creature carries his image. We don't meet those requirements. And my friends, the harsh reality of it is, God has only one payment that is appropriate and adequate for our inability to live up to his standards. And that is death. Pure and simple. And it has always been death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Back to Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Ezekiel 18, every living soul, there it is again, the image of God, belongs to me. The Father as well as the Son, both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. <clears throat> you see, God's justice, his holy justice, requires death from all who choose to disobey. That's his justice. That is the cold, hard truth for every human who's ever walked this planet. No one is exempt. That's what the justice of God requires. But there's another blank in your outline. God's holy love. Why are we still here? <laughs> if all that's true, you and I should be dead. Why are you still here? Why am I still breathing? Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. 
Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We have a hymn that we sing based on that. Ephesians 2. Because of his great love for us, God is rich in mercy. Go back to Adam and Eve. We see it from the beginning. The very first sin mankind ever introduced into the world required instant death. And what did God do? He showed mercy. Very first sin ever committed, he shows mercy. There was still death, though. Remember, God had brought every animal to Adam to see what he would name them. He named each one with a unique name based on its characteristics. He knew and loved those animals. There was perfect harmony in the garden. He and his wife sinned against God. And God took two of those animals and killed them to provide coverings for their shame and guilt and nakedness. You don't think that didn't impress Adam and Eve? You don't think they didn't understand the concept? They died instead of me. God required death, and I just saw it. Deflected from me to this innocent animal. And then from that time forward, God instituted the Old Testament sacrifices. Death was required. But in his mercy, it was deflected to an innocent lamb. Or something like that. And every good Hebrew who wasn't just going through the ritual and the motions of doing church in the Old Testament, understood what was going on. As a father, I could see how it would have been for me. I would have brought my son, sons and daughter, and every time we brought a sacrifice to the, either the tabernacle or the temple, my children would have said, what are we doing? This is one of our animals, remember, taken from our fold. And I would have had to explain to my children, we have sinned and offended the justice of Almighty God. Therefore, we must die. But God in his mercy has provided that this lamb would die instead of us. No, Dad, not the lamb. We love the lamb, yes, but we have offended the justice of Almighty God. If it was done right, every child would have understood that their God was holy, and yet he was merciful. Yet, of course, we know they turned it into ritual. So God provided for thousands of years this way to deflect or defray his justice and to put it out, pour it out on the animals instead. Next blank. But you see, there's a predicament, man's predicament. The predicament is, the Bible says, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It was a temporary method, temporary, to deflect God's justice and to delay it. But an animal is not made in the image of God. It does not bear his markmanship to the world. That's not the image of God. Hebrews says they can never satisfy. The blood of bulls and goats cannot satisfy God. So we cannot expect that system to last forever. It was temporary. And in fact, Ephesians 2 says, we are deserving of and under the wrath of God because we as mankind have chosen to rebel and sin against him. Ephesians 2 Verse 1 through 3, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. All of us lived among them at one time. All of us gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. I'm not saying that, folks. That's the word of God. It's saying that the anger of God was kindled against us. 
because we chose to take his image and transform it into that which would please ourselves. Our predicament is that the animal sacrifices would only go so far. They couldn't ultimately satisfy God's justice. If he let that system continue, he would be compromising who he is, and he cannot compromise. So we're in dire straits. But there's one final blank. I've gotten them all so far, haven't I? God's solution. Only God could find a solution that would work. There's a dilemma. Not from God's perspective. You understand the mind of God is infinite. He doesn't see a dilemma. But from our perspective, there is a real dilemma here. Does God maintain his justice and crush us? That's what we deserve. Does he uphold his justice and give us what we rightly deserve? He loves us. He doesn't want to. Does he do that? Or does he love us, turn a blind eye to our sin, and sweep it under the rug and forgive us? How do you do both? That, my friends, is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. He found a way to uphold both his justice and his love at the same time. This is where we see the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. In the greatest display of mercy, kindness, wisdom, the universe has or ever will see, God chose to uphold both his justice and love by crushing himself, by punishing himself. He sent that which was dearest to him, his beloved son, to be one of us and to be punished in our place. His son, it says, took the full wrath of God. The justice of God was poured out on the son of God so that we might experience the forgiveness of God. Who else would meet the requirements of God like that? Jesus Christ is fully divine. He is God, period. Therefore, he has an intrinsic quality of righteousness that no one else has. He's God Almighty. And yet, he became one of us. For 33 years, he lived and breathed as a human being. He was the God-man, both. And as a human being, catch this, he fully satisfied the requirements of God's law, perfectly. Think of all the laws that God has. Think of the main two. Jesus said that sum up all the rest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus did that 100% of his life, every waking moment. He loved God greater than anything else. I don't go through a single hour loving God with everything in my being. I'm distracted by the things of this world. You name it. Then he loved his neighbor as himself. He never coveted. He never lied. He never stole. He never once said a word that was out of turn, that wasn't appropriate. He satisfied the demands of God's law perfectly. Therefore, when he died, he possessed in himself a righteousness that was both his as God and earned as man. He was fully righteous in God's eyes. As the God-man, he could take the sin of the world. I can't die for you. I've got my own sin. You can't die for me. You've got your own sin. Jesus Christ knew no sin. In my opinion, the most important verse in the entire Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call this the great exchange. At the cross, God poured out his holy justice on one who was able to take it. Our representative, because he was fully man, and yet one who was innocent and righteous because he fulfilled the law of God. That is why at the cross, Jesus agonized. You think it was the physical suffering? Of course he dreaded that. But it wasn't the physical suffering that made him say, take this cup from me. It was knowing that at the moment he hung on the cross, he would experience the full wrath of his beloved father. The one from whom all eternity he had known nothing but perfect love and communion. And he chose to experience what hell is like. Hell is the wrath of God. And he experienced it willingly to take the sin of the world on his shoulders. For you. For me. And when he did that, all of our guilt is transferred to his account. He became sin, it says. And in, our, in, in that place, what is given to us is his righteousness. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. God looks upon you when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And he exchanges your guilt for Christ's righteousness. And he sees you through the eyes of Jesus Christ, his beloved son, perfect in every way. And therefore, you are acceptable in his sight, forgiven, justified, at peace with God forevermore. Where else would we find that before a holy God than in his son and in the sacrifice he provided? Sincerity of faith will not do it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No man comes to the Father except that they be sincere at heart, except through me. It is a narrow road. We come to God only through Jesus Christ because nothing else is acceptable to him. Nothing else satisfies that righteous justice. The passage that was read today by Rachel says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. In other words, I'm finding a way to pay for it, God's saying. I'm finding a way to pay for it. Because in his forbearance, in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Yes, the blood of bulls and goats temporarily covered, but it wasn't a final solution. His final solution was Jesus Christ. The simple truth, my friends, is that God punished Jesus instead of me, instead of you. And only Jesus' death could satisfy, because he was unique in all of the universe. That is why the cross is special. There's a quote listed for you there, because he says it much better than I can. <laughs> What's so special about the cross? In the cross, the wisdom of God devised a way, remember the dilemma? Devised a way to preserve the righteousness of God, or the justice of God, to uphold who he is, his standards of right and wrong, while displaying the love of God to those who only deserve the wrath of God. That is the gospel. You want to say the gospel to your friends, to teach it to your children, to understand it for yourself? That's the gospel. That God's justice was satisfied at the cross by the payment made by the unique Son of God. And God's love was poured out to me, 
though I deserve the wrath of God only. We began with the story of that middle school girl, and I want to conclude with that same story. We talked with her at length through the whole week. A lot of these same concepts we've talked about this morning. Her need of a Savior, why Jesus was the only answer, why what he did was unique in all of history. And I can tell you by the end of the week, after hours of personal counseling, not by me, by others, through Bible, Scripture, and reading, she said she understood why the sacrifice of Jesus was required for her sins, if she wanted to be forgiven and have peace with God. And on the last night of camp, the preacher gave a presentation, and then he gave an invitation. And he sent those of us who were counselors outside where no one could see, and he said, if you need to go talk to someone, leave this meeting and go find a counselor and just talk to them. And this young lady came up to us, and she said, I understand that Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I understand that his sacrifice was unique, and my faith is in him, and I want to be baptized to declare that to the world. I can tell you that the joy I felt at that moment is unparalleled. Unparalleled in human experience. To know that a soul made in the image of God was rescued from the judgment and damnation of God's holy justice because of his love and drawn to the foot of the cross where she clings to Jesus Christ as her only hope is what I want to spend my life doing. And I know you do too. And that is why I'm thankful for a preacher at this church who pounds that truth week after week after week. Because when you experience it, nothing satisfies like that. What greater cause could we have for living for? Well, I don't know where you are today. As we prepare to sing, I'm going to give an invitation. Maybe you've never understood before today why the sacrifice of Jesus was necessary. Maybe you understand now that without his sacrifice, you and I deserve only the judgment of God for our sin. That's the cold, hard truth. But because of his love, he offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to anyone who reaches out by faith and trusts in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you want to do that today, I invite you to come forward as we sing. Tommy will be here as a minister of this church. You can meet with him. He would love to lead you to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've already trusted in Christ, but you've never declared that publicly. You've never taken the step of the waters of baptism to tell the entire world, I follow Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. Till I die, he's my Lord. If you've never done that, you need to. I invite you to come forward and take that step as well. Or maybe you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ and you're looking for a church where you can worship, plug in, and be part of something greater than yourself. Join us. (laughs) Come forward and join us. We'd love to have you be a member here. Let's stand and sing.